Welcome to Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program that celebrates the tremendous talent of the thousands of people who provided news and entertainment to listeners through the only form of immediate mass media available in their homes during the American Golden Age of Radio, roughly from 1930 through the 1940s. This podcast originates from the seacoast of New Hampshire, and I am your host, John Lovering, thanking you for listening. Now let's turn back the clock and introduce the rebroadcast of this track's featured program. On this track is another segment from the Biography of Sound series broadcast from 1954 to 1958 on NBC. Joseph Myers, an NBC newsman, produced a documentary on Winston Churchill for his 80th birthday. That was on November 30th, 1954. It was an instant hit and highly praised by critics. He was so encouraged by the show's success, he went on to produce another piece on the writer Ernest Hemingway, again to wide critical acclaim. He did a third documentary on Gertrude Lawrence. The show was then serialized and aired weekly for 60 minutes, beginning in February 1955. Other people that were the subject of the biography and sound included Kyle Sandberg, Stan Kenton, Ethel Barrymore, George Bernard Shaw, Ernest Hemingway, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Leo DeRocher, F. Scott Fitzgerald, George Washington, Albert Schweitzer, Babe Ruth, and the list goes on. All pretty impressive people. On this track, you're going to hear the biography and sound of Kyle Sandberg. He was an American poet, biographer, journalist, and editor. He won three Pulitzer Prizes, two for his poetry and one for his biography on Abraham Lincoln. During his lifetime, Sandberg was widely regarded as a major figure in contemporary literature, especially the volumes of his collected verse, including Chicago Poems, Cornhuskers, and Smoke and Steel. Carl August Sandberg was born January 6, 1878, in Galesburg, Illinois, and died on July 22, 1967, in Flat Rock, North Carolina. This is Heirloom Radio, and I thank you for listening. Meet Carl Sandburg. star you'll hear by transcription, the story of Carl Sandburg, a poet, a folk singer, an author, and a historian. You'll see his life as seen through the eyes of friends and relatives and critics of poetry and writers of history and the newspaper men who worked with him back in the old Chicago days. Meet Carl Sandburg. Way down up on the Wabash, such land was never known. If Adam had passed over it, the soil he'd surely own. He'd think it was the garden he played in when a boy and straight pronounced it Eden in the state of Illinois. Then move your family westward, bring all your girls and boys, and cross that Shawnee Ferry to the state of Illinois. 
I'm Dave Garraway, and like many another person in this radio business, I go home after a day's work and sit down and relax, and often with a book of poems in my hand. My taste uh, in poetry is personal, of course. Almost everybody's is, I guess. And mine is one with a very few standards, necessary standards at least. One thing, though, I love to understand the, the poet or the poem I'm reading. I want to read from one line to the next without having to go drag down the French dictionary or pull out Bullfinch's mythology. And another feeling I have for the kind of poetry I like is, well, virility is a good word, I guess. I like poets who make a sound, who boom and bang and write of things on the ground and high up in the sky, but out loud. And Carl Sandburg embodies both of these qualities for me, and he has indeed a third. He talks of the American scene and in the American idiom, and I like that. In fact, I think he could talk no other way. He's lived and worked all of his life in our cities and farms and the villages and the plains of America. He's become very much the, the genuine national voice in the realm of poetry. And if you were out on a search, it might be hard to find more than just a handful of people who've not been exposed to Carl Sandburg's personality, whose manners, and especially to that great booming voice of his. The last time I saw Carl Sandburg... Harvey Bright, writer and critic. Just a few weeks ago, at the National Book Award, I saw him. He uh, greeted me. He took a cigar out. Spliced it in half with the accuracy and competence and professionalism of a butcher cutting away the tail of a steak. Put one half of it in his pocket. Smoked the other half. We talked for a while and we reminisced about past meetings. We also reminisced about the Nobel Prize. And we got on to the fact that Hemingway had singled Mr. Sandberg out as somebody who should have won the Nobel Prize. And Mr. Sandberg, in uh, answering my question about how he felt about that singling out, went like this. Harvey Bright, I want to tell you that sometime 30 years from now, when the bright boys are sitting around, one boy will say, Did Carl Sandburg ever win the Nobel Prize? And another bright boy will say, Yes, Ernest Hemingway gave it to him in 1954. Besides his voice and his looks, Sandberg's trademark, of course, is free verse. Quite probably, the man never rhymed more than a dozen lines in his life. The first critic of note to recognize these talents was Harry Hansen. Back in the 20s, Hansen wrote Midwest Portraits, and the first chapter was about Sandberg. I think of Carl as a very straightforward writer in poetry. Harry Hansen. The sort of writer that all of us can understand. When Carl's poetry first appeared, many people said they didn't understand it. But that was because he had broken with the old rhythms. And he had new ways of saying things, but he always said something. 
If he wrote about steel mills, he wrote about steel mills. If he wrote about the smoke that went through the atmosphere from the steel mills, it was smoke. That smoke may have inspired thoughts, sentiments, ideas, but it, you could grasp it, and I could grasp it, and it wasn't loose and abstract. Carl has no sympathy for the abstract. A year or so ago, there was a large dinner of the Poetry Society of America in New York. It was given in Carl's honor, and Carl spoke there. And among other things, Carl read his poem, Abracadabra, which uh, makes fun of the modern abstract poetry. Seated in front of Carl were many poets who wrote abstractions, who wrote the modern poetry. They were amused. They were genial and friendly. They understood Carl. They understood that Carl was not in their camp, that he didn't understand and wouldn't attempt to understand what they were trying to write, and that he was talking for poetry that you and I can understand without having to go to the author and ask for a glossary. Hill blue among the leaves in summer. Hill blue among the branches in winter. Light sea blue at the sand beaches in winter. Deep sea blue in the deep, deep waters. Prairie blue, mountain blue. Who can pick a pocket full of these blues, a handkerchief of these blues, and go walking, talking, walking, as though God gave them a lot of loose change for spending money to throw at the birds, to flip into the tin cups of blind men? In the years just before the First World War, Chicago was a center of a literary renaissance in the Midwest, in fact, all over the country. It was there that so many great people came into flower, like Edgar Lee Masters, you remember the Spoon River Anthology, and Rachel Lindsay and Sherwood Anderson and Burton Rasko and Ben Hecht and a great many others. They got there and they worked and felt free and they wrote. And it was in Chicago that Sandberg got his start, too. He was rooted in a strong liberal and, and labor tradition, but still you have to eat, you know. And he took what job he could get. I was the associate editor of the A.W. Shaw Company, business publications. Carol Murphy, Chicago editor. I hired Carl uh, along in 1913, as I remember. He was one of uh, many young editors I put on, and I usually paid them uh, the fabulous salary of uh, somewhere around $100, $125 a month. I sent Carl out on an assignment to interview some of the leaders in the safety movement, which was a new thing at that time. And he came back with a short story, which I planned to use in Factory Magazine. And as I studied that story, it was typical of Carl. He had written it beautifully. It uh, brought tears to your eyes. You were sorry for this workman who had broken the rules and uh, stuck his hand into a clipping machine and lost some fingers. But the story also made you feel hot under the collar against the management, as if it were their fault, as if the men above him not only were not sorry, but were 
Uh, maybe just a little bit pleased that uh, this guy had got what was coming to him for his carelessness. And in going over this story with Carl and trying to modify it so that it would fit into the magazine and its policies, I said, listen, Carl, you always take a crack at the businessman in your stories. You're always on the laborer's side. Now, the businessman is our bread and butter. And he is not a fellow who delights in seeing his people suffer. He's a decent guy just like anybody else. He's trying to make his place safe. And he's sorry when anybody gets hurt. And we have to keep him happy and we have to remember that he is our bread and butter and our job is to help him with new and safer methods. Now, I don't remember how Carl took that, but uh, he was a little stubborn, and the chances are that he tossed back his Abraham Lincoln-like uh, cowlick and uh, stuck out his stubborn Swedish lips and uh, gave me some little wise crack. And I had had this problem all the time with him. So I said, now look, Carl, you write beautifully. Someday you're going to be a great writer. But you don't like to write our factual, unexciting type of stuff. You like to write literature in which there is feeling and sentiment and excitement. And for your own good, I think you... Just ought to pull out of here and find a place where you can write the kind of thing that you like to write. And he did. And we often met afterwards and laughed about it. Carl hasn't changed. And again, Harry Hansen. Carl is essentially the same man he was in Chicago when he had a very little job and had to play the guitar to make a living, sing folk songs, and write poems and get an occasional little piece of money from Poetry Magazine. Carl hasn't changed even though the White House calls him up and he confers with people in the government. Carl hasn't changed much in the houses that he has lived in. He lives in a little better house now than he did originally, yes. It still is quite modest, he still has uh, land on which goats are being raised, and the goats are being raised for a purpose. They're saleable. They're a fine breed of goats. And inside himself, Carl is still the man who liked the common man. He's a man of democratic instincts. If you read his early poems, you'll find there a certain contempt for the men who exploit others. But those men for whom Carl has this contempt, are largely abstractions. They represent certain types of exploitation. They're not real people. Huntington sleeps in a house six feet long. Huntington dreams of railroads he built and owned. Huntington dreams of 10,000 men saying, Yes, Blithery sleeps in a house six feet long. Blithery dreams of rails and tires he laid. 
blithery dreams of saying to Huntington, Yes, sir. Huntington, blithery. Sleep in houses six feet long. And in those days, there was an influential little magazine called Poetry, founded in Chicago by a wonderful lady named Harriet Monroe. It was influential in its contribution to the culture of our country, but it wasn't influenced very much by anything but what the straight-thinking, forward Miss Monroe liked herself, and she liked Carl Sandberg. And he contributed regularly. And what's more, and this was rather rare in the case of Poetry Magazine, he was paid for his contributions. But even then, the rewards of poetry are somewhat less than munificent, as I'm sure you know. And Sandberg needed a job. How he got that job is, I think, best told by the man who helped him get it. His name is Ben Hecht. He just wrote The Child of the Century. It was a dull, rainy day of 1914 in the press room of the Chicago County Building when Sandberg was presented to his working colleagues of the various newspapers, or I should say Sandberg presented himself, the man who brought him in fell asleep before he got around to the formality of introductions. None of us paid much attention to Sandberg, but our rummy game was shortly interrupted by the awakening Jack Malloy, who suddenly announced we were to hear some of our guest poetry. I'd seen one previous poem by Sandberg in the little pocket newspaper day book on which he was then working, and poetry reading was no novelty in our press room. But to this day, I remember Sandberg's voice as the finest I have ever heard, reading or talking. And in Sandberg's voice lived all his poetry. He started reluctantly pulling from his pocket some notes he said he would be called Chicago when finished. He read, Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, city of big shoulders. It was a voice that made sounds fresh and clothed the simplest of sentences and mysteries. The next day, I talked to my boss on the Chicago Daily News, managing editor Henry Justin Smith. I told him there was a reporter he ought to hire named Carl Sandberg. This is a man who can write poetry like Whitman, I told Smith. Smith loved our paper with an interest that ignored circulation figures and editorial policies. He saw the paper as a daily novel written by a score of Balzacs, but we were missing a poet. He put Sandberg on the city staff and told city editor Brooks Beitler to give Sandberg assignments worthy of his talent. He, uh, he always looked very gloomy. Bob Casey, a colleague on the news. Until you finally found out that that was just something that he was born with. It was a face. It wasn't anything else. He was a very humorous sort of a duck. And, uh, well, he, he and I got acquainted with one another because I went in and I asked him why he didn't uh, why he didn't write ordinary verse. I said, gee, I said, I don't think that this modern verse is going any place. Well, he says, I don't know. He said, I try it. And he says, it's easier to write. And I said, I guess it is. And I said, you've written some very wonderful things. I said, if you only had these things m- metrical you'd probably have some verses that would be extant in this country for the next 200 years at least, and maybe longer than that. Well, he said, I thank you very much for that, but he said, I do these things because I do them quickly. And, uh, well, then we got to be pretty good friends. Carl's poems in free verse were 
still being widely parodied in those days. Vincent Starrett, Chicago columnist. But if he was disturbed by the humorous, he didn't show it. Once he said, drawling his words like a cowboy, a man was building a house. A woodchuck came and sat down and watched the man building the house. That was his invariable retort to his critics. It was apparent from the first to the guiding spirits of the Chicago Daily News that Sandberg was not a man to be influenced by a deadline. City editor Brooks Beitler was no fancier of poetry, no coddler of talent, but a realist with his eye on deadlines and copy. Again, Ben Hecht. Day after day, he watched Sandberg snowshoe to his desk, as we used to describe his walk, sit down and like some sea squid, seemingly vanish into a cloud of mood. But Beitler finally used a suggestion of his staff to test Sandberg's merits as a newsman. He sent the poet to cover a labor convention in Minneapolis. It was quite a big union session, ending some days afterward in a completely unexpected manner with a real display of gun shooting. We waited for sweeping lyrical copy from Sandberg. The first day, nothing. The second day, still nothing. The day of the shooting, not even an acknowledgement of the assignment. So Beitler ordered Sandberg. They called to Minneapolis. Within an hour, Beitler had Sandberg's reply. Dear boss, it read, can't leave now. Everything too important and exciting. It was signed, Carl. So they called Carl back from that convention, and they gave him a job where the deadline was something less of a menace. A job more fitting to him, a job where he could have more time to write. People did strange combinations of things at the Daily News in those days, but so many of them were really writers. Judith Waller, now of NBC. Carl did a little bit of everything, and principally, he was a movie critic. This uh, he probably liked to do because I don't think he cared much for the movies, but it did give him a chance to sit in dark places and compose poems and stories. I remember a cold afternoon in late autumn when Carl and I walked for miles. Again, Vincent Sterrett. Discussing the shortcomings of mankind and laughing so often that passers-by stopped to look at us. Ultimately, we found a comfortable place in Forest Park and stopped in to get warm. There was sawdust on the floor and a big-bellied stove was throwing off heat in a way we liked. We ordered beer and carried it to a corner table. After prohibition, Carl said in his slow drawl, we'll be ordering Coca-Colas again. Then, almost without pause, he added, I've been telling the kids some stories lately that I sort of like. Maybe they'll be in a book someday, I don't know. But I'm not ready yet to let them out. These were the tales that went into Rutabaga stories. He began to tell us one of them. Five nights before Christmas... Five pretzels sat looking out of a grocery window, lighted by five candles. Outside, snow falling, big white snowflakes, coming cool and quiet. And they see a man outside the window, and he looks in while they look out. 
They see his right hand brush off snow from his left shoulder and his left hand brush off snow from his right shoulder. And they see him shake off snow from his hat and put his hat back on his head. But they don't hear the man, well, 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 five pretzels. And how many children is it I have at home running around upstairs and downstairs, in and out of the corners? One, two, three, four, five, one for each pretzel. Now, early that afternoon, the five pretzels decide they will go with a circus and be trapeze actors. On billboards everywhere, the five marvelous pretzels in big letters. And they run out of their dressing rooms in pink tights, bow to the audience and throw kisses. One kiss with the right hand and the other kiss with the left hand. And a man with a big musical megaphone, the five marvelous pretzels. Up in the air they go. Two of them hang by their knees and throw the other three pretzels back and forth in the air, in the empty and circumambient air. So far, so good. Then they argue, fuss, dispute, wrangle. Which two shall hang by their knees and which three shall be thrown back and forth in the empty and circumambient air? All five want to be the two that hang by their knees. None of them wants to be one of the three thrown back and forth. So they say, let's forget it. Now they decide instead they will ride on the heads of the first five elephants in the vast, mammoth, stupendous parade of the elephants. On billboards, people will see on each elephant one dazzling, glittering little pretzel in pink tights, bowing and throwing kisses, one kiss with the right hand and the other kiss with the left hand. Yes, so they decide. And just before the first elephant comes out leading the parade, the man with a big musical megaphone calls the five marvelous pretzels. So far, so good. Then comes the argument. Who should ride on the head of the first elephant? Who should be the first one to come out bowing and throwing kisses to the audience? They argue, fuss, dispute, wrangle. And at last decide... Whoever rides the first elephant today rides the last elephant tomorrow. Then they see the man outside, brushing snow off his right shoulder with his left hand, brushing snow off his left shoulder with his right hand, shaking snow off his hat and putting his hat back on his head. And the man walks into the store and comes out with the five pretzels in a paper sack and walks along the street in the falling snow. Big white snowflakes on his shoulders, on his hat. And does he know as he walks along in the falling snow what happened that afternoon and evening among the pretzels? No. Does he know he has in a paper sack the five marvelous pretzels? No. Does he know they decided to go with a circus and be trapeze actors and then change their minds? No. Does he know they decide instead they will ride on the heads of five elephants and bow and throw kisses while thousands of people laugh and cheer and cry, Look, look, here come the five marvelous pretzels. No. Then what does the man know about what the five pretzels want to be? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Which shows how ignorant some people are. 
your stories. I can't define the word magic, but it's in there for me. And I hope that your child doesn't miss the fun of knowing them. Carl Sandberg was born 77 years ago, down in Galesburg, Illinois. Maybe he learned about kids by being himself a very typical little boy in a very typical little town. Charlie Krantz, his cousin and boyhood companion, recalls a day when Carl was just six years old. The beast was sitting outside, and he took a brush. He thought that was flies. He walks up along them, and the hives were about that close together. He knocked them bees off, and they got on. Why, if it hadn't been for my dad, they'd have killed them. The bees got on that kid, and he was just black with them, and they stung him. We thought he was going to die. Horse and buggy days, them days, there was no way of getting to town, no doctor right here. So they doctored him up the best they could in the hours for an hour. And you couldn't blame the kid. They stung my dad so he couldn't see for a couple of days. You know, them bees, they're poison. Young Sandberg's education was very unorthodox, about as unorthodox as he is himself. He did go to grade school, but then he stopped for seven years. And then he went to college, went to Lombard College in Galesburg. The people who remember him about that time um, cannot truthfully say that they were impressed very much. Alice Henderson knew Carl from boyhood days. Well, he was very much as he is now. Pretty serious, always pretty serious. Inclined to be interested in uh, affairs of the day and what was going on. He liked to dance and he always wanted me to save a waltz for him. I'd say he was a typical young man. I never thought that he was particularly interested in girls. But I don't mean that he didn't like and he liked to dance and things like that. But I never remember of his ever uh, dating any particular girl. Oh, some uh, young chaps at that age don't think of anything else, you know. But I think Carl probably was thinking of his future and things of that kind. I don't think of any of his contemporaries at the time really felt that Carl was going to do so much. I think that uh, Professor Wright probably began to realize that. Father had a little club. Professor Wright's son, Quincy Wright of Chicago University. A club with about four members that he called the Poor Writers Club. I know because they were impecunious because they considered their writing wasn't too good. But at any rate, about once a week, he'd have these students come to the house and they'd discuss uh, their own writing. Each of them would produce a poem. Father wrote some poetry himself. And I think it was through the Poor Writers Club that uh, uh, Sandberg really got interested in literature. Father was quite an enthusiast for Walt Whitman. He introduced Sandberg to Walt Whitman. And Sandberg had this uh, these poems, which he called In Reckless Ecstasy. And uh, we printed it on a little press we had in the basement of our house. And I set up a goodie of it in eight-point Casanova Roman myself and uh, uh, ran off the pages on uh, the hand press. And I saw a great deal of Sandberg. He, uh, he and Father were very, very close friends. Of course, uh, Sandberg was a, a student at uh, Lombard. He was a good basketball player, by the way. I remember he was a great basketball player on, on the Lombard basketball team. Later, after he left Lombard, and I think that was about 1902 or three, he worked for a time in the fire department. 
And you see him sitting outside uh, the fire department. He didn't have too much business in Galesburg. And he thought that was a good job because he could sit back and write poetry uh, between fires. I read a good many of the Carl things. Again, Alice Henderson. But I don't remember that any of them impressed me very greatly at that time. I probably wasn't old enough or mature enough to appreciate them. I think I'm not old enough or mature enough to appreciate some of the things Carl writes now. I think some <laughs> of the things are beautiful. Just beautiful, but some of the things I think are beyond me. I don't have the understanding of them. I wonder sometimes what he meant by them. I uh, have felt that I'd like to discuss them with him, but I haven't had the opportunity for one thing, and another thing, I don't think he likes to discuss them. At least he said he didn't like to have people ask him what he meant by this. He said, I'll tell you what he said. He said when he wrote... He knew, and God knew, but now only God knew what he meant. We always sat here and read in the evening. My yeah. husband used to get a copy of Sandberg, and uh, he'd sit down and read, and then he'd be chuckling, and then I'd have to sit and listen. And he'd say, why, there's, there's a lot in this, he'd say. you got to kind of study it out, but he said, my, isn't there a lot in that? <laughs> and he just enjoyed it. Some people, well, I see that probably there was a bit of jealousy of a hometown boy to think that he hadn't gone along so far ahead of them all. Other people admire him very much. In general, I think that I find uh, more people admiring Carl Sandburg away from Galesburg than I do just around Galesburg. She's bounded by the Wabash, the Ohio, and the lakes. She's crawfish in the swampy lands, the milksick and the shakes. But these are slight diversions and take not from the joy of living in this garden land, the state of Illinois. Read Carl Sandberg will continue after a little pause here for station identification. Then move your family westward, bring all your girls and boys, and cross that Shawnee Ferry to the state of Illinois. In between grade school and college, Carl took to the road, and he loved it on the road. He hopped freight trains, worked as a waiter in Keokuk, as a field hand out in Kansas, and he met everybody, petty thieves and panhandlers and all sorts of types. Some men uh, who have achieved some eminence often try to minimize the, what shall I say, less glamorous events of their past. But in Carl's book, uh, Always the Young Stranger, he wrote a whole chapter about this excursion. Its heading is called Hobo. I wandered and I groped. It's a long story. Uh, I headed back uh, after two or three years of wandering, groping. I headed back from a town in New Jersey to Fort Illinois, but I got stopped in Allegheny. I was arrested at McKee's Rocks, uh, charged with riding on a railroad train without a ticket. It was a coal gondola. And... Uh, I got ten days in the Allegheny County Jail, but that's a long, short story. 
some of the first poetry that I wrote was in my wandering and groping years. Uh, and uh, I've thrown away most of it. What, I, what of it I have kept, uh, I, I, uh, I, I keep uh, to laugh at. And so the road finally led to Chicago. I told you how he got started there, but for romantic interest, I better tell you that Sandberg fell in love twice in his life. As a boy, he fell in love first with Abraham Lincoln. And as a young man, he fell in love with Lillian Steichen. One day I was visiting my folks. Edward Steichen, the photographer. On their farm, three miles out of Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. My father had taken the buggy and driven into town. And my mother informed me that Lillian was coming home today. And she was, while she was doing this, she was fussing with a huge ham in the oven, basting it carefully. And she says, Lillian is bringing a man with her. And then my father drove up the buggy and Lillian got out. And the man with a dark bang hanging down over one eye, that bang which now looks like a big blob of snow on the top of a pine tree. And my father was scratching his head and I knew perfectly well what he was saying to himself. And it was my God, another artist in the family. And my mother was all in a dither. She thought that a poet would be something perfectly marvelous in the family. My sister rustled out in the kitchen to prove what a good little houseworker she was. And I don't believe there ever was a ham in all of history that had such a thorough basting. Well, a couple of months later, they were hitched. And I acquired a brother. Now began the pursuit of Lincoln. Sandberg rummaged through Chicago's bookstores, through the great wealth of myth and fact surrounding the 16th president. He used to visit all the old bookshops in search of the material that interested him. Vincent Sterrett. I can see him now as I saw him then. His gaunt frame bent over a ten-cent bin, his, his gray forelock falling into his eyes. Old Carl, we called him even then, 40 years ago, because of his gray hair. There was an old bookstore in Clark Street over the river that he used to visit looking for Lincoln material. Outside the door, there was a bin of old bound magazines, Harper's, Centuries, Atlantic's, and so on, that contained a lot of Civil War stuff. They were quarter volume. The trough was a bit low, so Carl used to seat himself cross-legged on the sidewalk while he hunted through the old magazines for reminiscences of his hero, when he found one, he would rip out the irrelevant pages and take them inside. But, of course, he always paid for the whole book. 
There must be many people still living who remember the gray-haired poet sitting on the sidewalk in Clark Street looking for those old magazines, looking for Lincoln material for the great book that he was going to write. In those days, I was a collector of old books, first editions and rare books of every kind, and I managed to excite quite a number of the newspaper men in my hobby, but not Carl. He was never a convert to that sort of antiquarianism. He bought books copiously. He was a wonderful accumulator of books. But they were tools, not vanities, not something to boast about. They were things to read and study and understand. He didn't care a hoot in hell, he told me, for first editions as such. But he was a prodigious reader with a profound interest in history. Lingard wrote a message to Congress in 1862 in December. He was proposing that Congress should enact a measure by which the slaves could be bought in the border slave states that had not seceded from the Union. It would make for goodwill. It would shorten the time of the war, he felt. And he wrote... Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will let us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate for the stormy present. Will that sentence go for today? The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate for the stormy present. And he added, we must think anew, we must act anew, we must disenthrall ourselves. The search for Lincoln material never paused. And as the demand grew for Carl Sandburg to come and sing and lecture and talk, he traveled all across the country, but... Wherever he was, just as soon as the lecture ended, he hurried over to the local library to continue his hunt for material. In Chicago, he set up headquarters in a bookshop owned by his friend, Ralph Newman. Carl thinks out every word and every phrase, and he constantly works over the things he has written. He is never satisfied. I recall him telling me when he was nearing the end of the Lincoln story... Uh, that he could keep on polishing and shining and improving this indefinitely, never finish. But there comes a time when an author must say to himself, uh, perhaps this is as good as I've got a right to let this work become. Otherwise, it'll never be printed. He does his best work late in the day. Uh, he very seldom is up and working before noon. I don't think he does any writing until, oh, perhaps the middle of the afternoon, and then works on as late as he feels like it, I mean, into the early hours of the morning. Uh, he smokes cigars, and he smokes any kind of cigar, as far as I can tell. He cuts a cigar in half, 
and then smokes each half down to the most minute butt. I don't think that there's any human being in the world who has ever smoked a cigar down to the minute dimension that Carl does. It, it's something almost imperceptible when he's through with it. Bit by bit, he found his material. And bit by bit, he wrote down the story of Lincoln and of the Civil War. And what emerged was a unique, monumental history of that period. Sandberg's six volumes on Lincoln. Bruce Catton, historian and editor of the American Heritage. Taking him from his birth to the end of his life. Cover ground that's been covered by a great many biographers. Dozens and dozens of lives of Lincoln have been written. A great many more will be written in the generations to come. I doubt if any of them will get at the real truth of the man as well as Sandberg has done. Even though you can go through Sandberg's six volumes and find errors of facts, misinterpretations, things that a more careful scholar would correct, that doesn't really make any difference. What Sandberg did was get in underneath and bring the brooding, evocative quality of Lincoln out into the open so you can feel it and touch it. When you get through, you feel that you really knew what this man was about and how it was that he was able to speak for this country in such a deathless way. There's no other history of the time that tells us so much about people. Alan Nevins, historian. Great and small, mean and heroic. Funny and tragic, civilian and military, rich and poor. No other history gives us such a sense of multitudinous life and myriad-sided activity. Historians, I think, are always viewed with a certain amount of suspicion. Uh, <clears throat> we turn to the pages of Carl's book on Lincoln, and we find there how Lincoln regarded them. He tells of a White House reception where a friend of the president's pointed out the figure of one of America's chief historians. I've always supposed it must have been George Bancroft. See, said the friend, there stands our greatest historian. No man has plunged deeper into the sacred fount of learning. Yes, said Lincoln, and no man has come up drier. But there are historians and historians. And we can say of Carl that no man has plunged deeper into the sacred fount of learning for one particular era of American history, and no man ever came up more sparkling. Carl spent 30 years on his memorable Lincoln books. Leonard Lyons, the columnist. A young writer once sent his manuscript to Sandberg to read and appraise. Six months later, he wrote Sandberg again, inquiring about the script. Six months after that came another letter, and then another. And after two years, he finally wrote to the postmaster at Flat Rock, North Carolina, asking him to place the letter into Carl Sandberg's hand. The postman delivered it and waited. Well, said Sandberg, we'll just have to send this man's work back to him. He's in too much of a hurry. An appraisal now of the man Sandberg. Poet, folk singer, author... Historian. Carl Sandburg is one of the few living men, Adley Stevenson, whose work and whose life epitomize the American dream. 
In him is the restlessness of the seeker, the questioner, the explorer of far horizons, the hunger that is never satisfied. In him also is the resiliency of youthfulness, which wells from within and which no aging can destroy. The thing that is memorable about Carl Sandburg, William Saroyan, author and playwright, is a quality of boyishness. He, for all his years, continues to resemble an American boy, a boy of the Midwest, a fellow who might be walking down to where the hobos hang out beside the railroad track, a listener, an interested boy, a boy wanting to find out what it's all about. I think he has had extraordinary integrity over the years. And again, Harvey Bright. He's never wavered. He's written the best that he could write. He's been honest. He's had considerable talent, although uh, the quality and the degree of the talent can be debatable. I would have liked him to have been my uncle or my father or my grandfather. I would have argued with him a lot as his nephew or as his grandson. The trouble is now that Carl Sandberg has reached such heights that through his efforts, through his work, and God knows I think he deserves them, the heights, it's hard for me to argue with him now. And that would be my only basic criticism of Carl Sandberg, that I... I am happy he's around, and I'm happy that he's written what he's written. And I think it will be memorable and permanent. But when I relate myself to him, I find that because of all this, I cannot be completely honest with him. I'm afraid that I might hurt him, or afraid that I might touch some delicate spot. I'm aware, for example, that it is possible that he and Robert Frost say aren't the good friends that one might hope they would be, and that if I said that I admired Frost, it was entirely possible that Carl Sandberg might disapprove of me. So I find myself holding back, whereas I wouldn't with Cummings, or with even, say, uh, T.S. Eliot. Perhaps that's my one feeling, that, that as the American genius type grows older, he congeals a little and demands from his friends and from his younger friends particularly that they uh, subscribe to everything that the master feels. There was a young left-wing musician who tried to sell Sandberg into letting him adapt one of Carl's books into an American opera. Again, Leonard Lyons. Sandberg didn't like the young man's pinkish politics and turned him down. And a brash, presumptuous young man suggested, what you should do, Mr. Sandberg, is read Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Sandberg replied, slowly and deliberately, employing, as he always does, the dramatic pause, like a man with much to remember and stores of wisdom on which to draw. My boy, he said, I read Karl Marx when I was a fireman in Galesburg, years before you were born. I took that job, incidentally, because it gave me an opportunity to read. Yes, I read Karl Marx. But I didn't stop reading after that. And, my boy, I'm still reading. Still reading. I saw Carl Sandberg recently at the home of Robert E. Sherwood. A meeting of two men who'd won Pulitzer Prizes for works on Lincoln. 
Soon after Sherwood's Abe Lincoln in Illinois had opened on Broadway, Sandberg phoned the playwright and said he'd like to see his play. He asked for two tickets, one for himself, the other for Sherwood. At the end of the first act, Sandberg said to the playwright, Mr. Sherwood, this is your interpretation of Lincoln. And when the last act opened with the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Sandberg listened and then being, Mr. Sherwood, that's my Lincoln. One very cold December day, Robert Sherwood, he telephoned me and said, let's go for a walk. So I went down to the Harkett Brace office and we started off. It was now late in the afternoon, dark and bitter cold. And Carl is quite a walker. He really strides out. And we walked from 45th Street and Madison Avenue to uh, Central Park and far up into Central Park. And I can tell you, I was getting pretty weary, but Carl showed no sign whatsoever of, uh, of quitting the walk. Uh, he said to me, he said, Now, I don't know whether there is such a thing as the life hereafter, whether the honored dead are still with us. He said, but assuming that there is a life hereafter, let us imagine that the immortal spirit of Abraham Lincoln is hovering over us and watching us at this moment. Now, Bob... What do you think is his opinion of the two of us? And I was sort of startled by this question. And I said, well, Carl, if I were you, I wouldn't worry. Then we walked on in silence. And finally, I was so tired and so cold that I said, Carl, if the immortal spirit of Abraham Lincoln is hovering over us, what do you think he'd say to the proposition that we go someplace and have a drink? Well, Carl walked on in silence for several minutes. I thought he just was ignoring my question. And finally, he said in that beautiful, booming voice of his, I think he'd approve. So we suited the word to the action. Sandberg has received many tributes, Pulitzer Prizes, degrees from many universities. A high school has been named for him. His birthplace in Galesburg has been restored. And the greatest of all was, was and is the love of the American people. Because he's very much the poet of all of us as Americans. When Abraham Lincoln was shoveled into the tombs, he forgot the copperheads and the assassins. In the dust, in the cool tombs. And Ulysses Grant lost all thought of con men and Wall Street. Cash and collateral turned ashes. In the dust, in the cool tombs. Pocahontas' body, lovely as a poplar, sweet as a red haw in November or a pawpaw in May. Did she wonder, does she remember, in the dust, in the cool tombs? 
Take any street full of people buying clothes and groceries. Cheering a hero or throwing confetti and blowing tin horns. Tell me if the lovers are losers. Tell me if any get more than the lovers. In the dust. In the cool tombs. Well, that's the end of our story. Except for one little remark I'd like to say. It's just that Sandberg is going to be remembered, I believe, when we are all of us. In the dust, in the cool tombs. flesh come creeping off bones. Church, I know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. When I'm gone, gone, gone. When I'm gone, come no more. Church, I know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. You've been listening to Meet Carl Sandberg, the story of the Midwest poet told by many of the people who knew him. This is Dave Garraway speaking. Our program was transcribed. It was an NBC News production. This is the NBC Radio Network.